Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, my name is Danny Roth, and this is Everyday Horror. It's a podcast where we watch at least one horror movie for every day in the month of October, and then (gasps) we talk about it. Uh, I am joined... Today, by the former editor-in-chief of Fangoria and a current columnist for uh, Fangoria and just a general uh, consultant producer for all things horror, Tony Tampone. Hey, Tony, how are you? Okay, Danny, I'm doing great. Happy Halloween. Happy early Halloween. Not, but not <laughs> yeah. too early because we're because we're we're pretty close now. By the time this goes out, we're gonna be we're gonna be really close to Halloween. Uh, gosh, you've been in the horror game for kind of a minute. Just a little while. <laughs> yeah, since uh, 1985, I, I started uh, with Fangoria. But before that, even before that, you know, I was uh, weaned on horror films. I was writing for horror and science fiction magazines while I was still in high school and college. And and I started making a real career out, out of it starting in 1985. And it's it's been a great ride. You know, every day I like getting up and immersing myself in horror entertainment and uh, it's just I couldn't ask for a better job. It's it's great. It's so good. It's scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Fangoria <laughs> kind of just had a had a had a big relaunch. You went to an event right around New York Comic Con at uh, at my old stomping grounds, the the store that I worked out for many years before I became oh. a person that podcasts professionally uh, for Ben Planet. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a great launch, a relaunch party. Fangoria had been off newsstands for like three years and the company got sold to this terrific uh, bunch of guys out of Texas, uh, a film production company called Cine State. And uh, they relaunched a magazine in a big way. They, uh, you know, put out the first new issue uh, in a long time uh, this October. And we're having another launch party actually this weekend at the Los Angeles Comic-Con. I'll be out there with the current editor, uh, Phil Nobile Jr., and also another former editor, Chris Alexander, and we'll be there on Saturday talking all things horror, and people could buy copies of Fangoria and, and meet the new t- new staff. So that's exciting. It's uh, it's a perfect season for it too. Yeah. What um? So in that first issue that came out, what did you um? What did you do? What did you end up writing about? I wrote about uh, the early days of the magazine in a column called Elegies that I'll be doing for every issue. It's sort of spawned from my original editorial page in the 20-plus issues that I used to uh, edit the magazine. Uh, So I went into my background and the the magazine's background, how it came to be named Fangoria, the the secret history of Fangoria as it is. And yeah, that's uh, that's what I wrote about for number one. And in future columns, I'll write about the history of our conventions and some of the cool people who used to pop into the Fangoria offices in New York and some of the uh, other horror things Fangoria has been up to, the radio show, books, movies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's a, a lot of ground to cover. Is there, um, is there something in there that you could sort of like give it, give a tease to, like one, one secret, one like kind of fun 
thing that you've done in your career there that's kind of like a fun little factoid that's going to be coming out or has already come out in that first issue? Uh, how the, the magazine got its name originally it was going to be called Fantastica, and it was going to be more like fantasy, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and dragons and Doctor Who aliens and stuff like that. Uh, but then there was another publication at the time called Fantastic Films, and they sued our publisher saying that Fantastica encroached on their brand. So they had to do a uh, you know, last-minute uh, retitling of the magazine, and the co-publisher – Norman Jacobs was taking a shower one night, and then the name Fangoria just popped into his head, and and the name and the the title was born, and it's and it stuck through thick and thin. Yeah, I gotta say, uh, I think all of my best ideas come in the shower, so that's a that's a <laughs> that is a relatable tale if ever there was. Listen, I don't want to um, belabor any further. You picked a very uh, just a little known film um, that almost no one's ever heard of before. Um, which one was it? It was Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 landmark Psycho. Other than because it's uh, arguably one of the greatest, uh, most important horror films of all time, why, why did you pick this particular one? I just love Psycho to death. You know, I could watch it. I could watch it every week and and always find something new to enjoy about that film. It's the, you know it's the granddaddy of the slasher film. Uh, it's w- one of Alfred Hitchcock's greatest films and I think his most successful films. Uh, it's just uh, A-class production all across the board. It's got great acting. It's got that wonderful score by Bernard Herrmann. Um, it's got some very shocking murder scenes that uh, really uh, had people screaming in the, in the theaters back in 1960 when it first came. It was a big, you know, big media sensation and, and blockbuster film that uh, you know, would go on to inspire sequels and remakes and TV shows and books. It's, uh, you know, it's been a bonanza ever since. And uh, the film really has stood the test of time. It's a, it's a wonderful movie. It's suspenseful. It also has a real undercut, undercurrent of dark humor. And as a matter of fact, Hitchcock even said in, uh, during interviews at the time that he saw Psycho as a comedy. Uh, and it actually is very funny, but I don't think it's in the same kind of comedic vein is say um, you know there's something about mary or uh, police academy it's more of a really dark black uh, pitch black humor and it's just yeah. a film that constantly delights me yeah no i i mean i i agree and yeah i mean i think so uh just very quickly in case people don't know um psycho is a, is just it's just a little film about uh a son and his complex relationship with his mother yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 um it's a film wherein um a young woman who just wants to uh get away from her life and get married to a guy who's in debt steals forty thousand dollars very sort of thoughtlessly and uh, and finds herself at this place called the Bates Motel and unfortunately it turns out that that hotel is run by a psycho which is why the movie's called Psycho and he kills her and then he kills everybody uh, that tries to come looking for her until he's finally captured and uh, you don't the big the big thing about it at the time was that uh, if somehow I mean like at that you know in 1960 there was no reason for you to know but the thing that everybody knows now is that you know, you're supposed to think it's his mother the whole time, but in fact, you know, it's him dresses his mother, and that in 1960 was very shocking. And yeah, that it sure is, was, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and so that's your that's just sort of the gist of what the film is. But um, the the layers kind of leading up to it, I think, are the first thing that are interesting. Um, so you mentioned um, that it was, uh, in some ways, his most successful film. And do you do you remember? I mean, it it was certainly in in the sense that he made many millions of dollars off of this. But do you remember the reason why he made so much money? Uh, it was a very low budget film. Hitchcock uh, shot Psycho uh, with his crew from his TV show uh, that uh, the, and that he was using, uh, you know, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. So they really banged it out pretty quickly. Um, he put a, a lot of his own money into the film. Uh, it cost eight hundred thousand uh, dollars to produce at the time. It was shot very quickly, you know, on the back lot. And uh, he shot in black and white. He saved money there too, even though he's been producing a lot of big movies, directing a lot of big movies in color during this period. You know, he decided to go black and white for Psycho, and um, you know the film went on to make fifteen million dollars uh, when it was released in nineteen sixty, which was a big deal back then. Now, now you know films do that in their first day, but Psycho, uh, you know, back when it was t- like twenty five cents to see a movie, uh, that was a lot of money. Uh, for a, a picture like that, and and it was also the the first really adult horror movie. You know, back back in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, horror films were looked at as as uh, films for kids almost. You know, Frankenstein, The Wolfman, Giant Ant movies. They were the mo- kind of movies that 13 year old boys went to see. Uh, but Psycho was a, 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 a horror film that appealed to you know adults. You know, people. You know in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s uh, who could go, uh, you know, see the film and enjoy it. And, and it, it really wasn't meant for kids like, you know, uh, the, the films of other generations and, uh, you know, really spoke to spoke to that generation. And it was it was just a very shocking uh, picture, you know, the, the murder and the and the, and the showers, uh, the shower murder, which is still disturbing to this day. You know, really galvanized audiences back then, and had everybody talking. It was the, probably the first water cooler horror movie. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly it was certainly up there. Um, I, I think it's also pretty notable that um, so uh, what was it? Paramount. They didn't really want to make it, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and they, and they basically yeah. said, you know, um, we don't want to pay you for this. And he his agreement was that he would take. I think it was like some crazy number, like sixty percent. Uh, in lieu of not being paid to make the movie because everybody was convinced that it was going to flop. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, he made many, many, many millions of dollars off of it. Now, my question to you is, do you remember the first time you saw it? How old were you? Do you remember what the year would have been? Yeah, um, I was probably in I was in grammar school. It was showed up on late, late night TV. Um, I'd always read about Psycho and heard about it, but I didn't know the, the kicker ending. And it was on late night TV because no network would air it during prime time because of the subject matter. So uh, so there I was, you know, 11, 12 o'clock watching it all by myself. You know, I was like I said, it was maybe in the sixth grade or the seventh grade. I might have even been a preteen. And my mother kept trying to get me to go to bed as I was watching this movie because she wasn't used to me staying up late. You know, school I had school the next day probably. So uh, as I'm watching the movie, it was, it was probably just after the shower murder. My mom goes, "Oh, come up to bed." It winds up that Norman is really his mother. Oh, she ruined it. The movie for me. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I never saw that. I never would have seen that coming. This was before the internet, before spoilers were so common 
and uh, she uh, ruined the film for me, and I, I've never forgiven her for that. <laughs> well, in that way, it makes the movie very relatable. You can really relate to Norman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I could see we could drive a man to kill his own mother. <laughs> you see, that's that's your mother. Wait, you didn't kill your mother, did you? You didn't do that, no, did you? No, no, okay, no. Okay, okay. All right, good, She's good. If you did, if you did, good. Yeah, you don't want to say that on a podcast. So uh, if it's if it's a lie, I appreciate the lie. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's. <laughs> I find I do find it interesting um, that so many people um, who have come on the show have a tendency to pick movies that they saw when they were really young and probably shouldn't have seen the movie that they saw. Cause even though that's ruined for you, uh, even though your mother was like, here's what happens, kid come to bed. It's still, I'm sure must've had an impact on you. Oh, sure. Yeah. They, especially, um, of course the shower scene you know, was pretty dramatic. You know, I don't think I'd ever seen the, you know, a, a naked woman on screen before partially naked. The, the murder of Arbogast on the stairs, that really freaked me out. That was a real shocker. And, of course, oh, the yeah. final revelation of Mother in, in the in this fruit cellar, that was a real jolt as well. So, contextually, if we're sort of looking at Psycho as a moment, uh, I think it is – I think we have to sort of talk about um, what sort of precedes it. Because um, if you look at what – I mean, as I recall – Hitchcock sort of was looking at the movies that were coming out that were these sort of low-budget B-horror films, and mm-hmm. he thought, well, these are making a lot of money. What would happen right. if somebody that could make a movie that didn't suck um, <laughs> made something in, in, in this genre? And what's sort of interesting about it is that um, I don't know that he was really thinking about the 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 sort of late day universal stuff because I mean like by the time you get to the 1950s you're looking at like more like Creature of the Black Lagoon and that variety the stuff that was sort of the the end of the uh, of the Universal Monsters era I think um, who he was probably looking at who he was targeting who he was kind of giving a a middle finger to was William Castle who uh, by the late 50s I think had quite a bit of notoriety as being this guy who uh, would tell the audience before the movie came out, you're going to be terrified and, and would come up with all these gimmicks and stuff, you know, like he'd have like the tingler come out and certain theaters, they'd have the thing underneath the seat that when the tingler, when the, when the, the titular tingler would appear, you'd get like a shake, you'd, your seat would vibrate um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of stuff like that. And, uh, and I think a year before, I, I think, yeah, I think that came out a year before psycho did. And I think the same was true of, um, House on Haunted Hill. And I think what's interesting about those is that you, you can sort of see the two of them knocking around doing similar things because, you know, uh, William Castle would do TV shows where he and, and even his, with his movies, he would sort of appear at the beginning with his cigar and introduce a thing. And, you know, when Alfred Hitchcock Presents was sort of the same shtick and Hitchcock would always, you know, he would always appear in the background of his movies. So it, what's interesting is that they are opposing contemporaries and yet despite the fact that I, I don't think Hitchcock really liked William Castle very much um uh-huh. gosh he does all of the same shtick for Psycho yeah. not just yeah, the movie itself but he was sort of the low rent Hitchcock <laughs> he was yeah, the low rent Hitchcock but he was also Hitch was um uh, he was also looking at the success of the Hammer films 
which were also coming out in the late 50s. That They were acquired by studio, studios like um, Warner Brothers, Columbia, and Universal. They were gobbling up these you know, low-budget gothic uh, horror movies. And they were very successful. I think Hitchcock might have been looking at those as well. And the funny thing is, you know, um, Hitchcock might have been tr- trying to take a, take something away from the Castle playbook. After the success of Psycho, William Castle started doing all these Psycho knockoffs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was back and forth. Yeah, for sure. But, but yeah, what I was thinking about was the fact that, you know, um, they would do all this stuff at the theaters, you know, like um, they'd have a, a timer, you know, like you'd hear music play and then they would say 10 minutes to psycho time, you know, uh, five minutes to, to psycho time. And then uh, and then he even had there was like a like a cardboard cutout of Hitchcock um, with something about, you know, like if uh, if you don't get in on time, you know, you know, if you try to sneak into the theater after the movie starts you know, you'll be beaten or some something ridiculous, you know, some sort of crazy thing, uh, which to me is is very is very William Castle. That's got that that sort of like, yeah, gimmicky 1950s, late 1950s sort of vibe to it. But um, but I, I think in a way, as as tongue in cheek as it was, Hitchcock was pretty um, method in both with the audience and then in, in the process of filming it because people didn't know when they were filming what the ending was going to be, he, uh, he had people, didn't he have like everybody sign a lot? This is like, I mean, this is before like, you know, spoiler culture that we live in now, but he sort of made sure that nobody, um, talked about anything that was happening in the movie. It was all very, very hush hush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, the, the, the campaign for psycho was that nobody would be admitted once the film began, because back in those days, you know, people just show up at the movies and they'd make a to you know, disturb the audience and to ruin the experience. He wanted everybody to see the film from the start, which was really a wise move. And I think they actually enforced that at theaters when it first came out, which is great because it's nothing's more distracting when you're sitting there getting into a film and someone shows up 20 minutes in and they're getting settled and distracting you with their, you know, barrel-sized popcorn and, you know, their, their coats and that kind of stuff. So uh, I wish there was more of that kind of stuff today. There are a couple of uh, smaller theater houses and like Alamo Draft House and stuff like that where um, you've got to. I think I, I don't know if they force you in at a certain time, but um, certainly once you're there, you got to turn off your phone if they catch you looking at yep. your phone. Kick yeah, you no out talking. And that kind of stuff. And yeah, you know, you just have to deal with the you know, the waiters scrambling in the dark. <laughs> but he was pretty um, Hitchcock. Like I said, even prior to um, the film being released, because it was I mean, it was it was based on a Robert Block novel. And right. I mean, I don't know if this is apocryphal or what, but, um, you know, he he sort of um, bought the rights anonymously and then proceeded to like buy up all the copies of the book so that no one could read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, which is, that, that's which true, is crazy. Yeah. And I think, you know, in 2018, if something like that happened, I'd say, yeah, it sounds right. That sounds like some mm-hmm. something that that a person <laughs> would do now because that's like that's the culture but in 1960 it really was not at all i can't like it's shocking to me to think of something you know um that you know like now almost uh you know almost 60 years ago it would be um that would somebody would go to those lengths to prevent people from knowing anything but here's what's here's my question you got spoiled for it how much do you think the movie was ruined for you because your mother told you. 
Oh, you know, it it, it really wasn't ruined because there was just so much to enjoy and love. And to, you know, the film just opened my eyes so much to, you know, editing and music, all these, all the other components that come together to make a great film. You know, it was such a, it was such a learning experience watching Psycho to, to see that artistry, that craft involved. Cause before that, you know, I was used to watching, you know, I was a teenage Frankenstein and, you know, a lot of them and, the, you know, the, the B movies of the fifties, you know, creature from the black lagoon and stuff like that, which, you know, were more geared towards children. And, and of course those films were wonderful and well-made and all, but here was a movie again, that was really for, for adults. And the, the performances were so good, especially Janet Lee, who, who wound up getting nominated for best sex supporting actress for her part in the movie. She was so good. And Anthony Perkins is, uh, is such a delight to watch. Um, you know, he had, they had lived some stuff in the film and his mannerisms, his twitches. It was just so, it, it was just such a, you know, a thrill to see it and appreciate it on so many different levels from a, a fright level, from a, a psychological level. Yeah. You know, again, then it was that black undercurrent of uh, dark humor in the film. So good to, to experience this film. And then I have watched it again and again. Over the years, I've seen it on the big screen, the small screen, and I never get bored with it. I never get tired of Psycho. Talk about um, the experience of uh, of rewatching it over and over again. I find that the movies that I watch over and over again, there are certain things that, like new stuff, I'll get on each rewatch. Like, <laughs> yeah, what what have uh, you found? That yeah. what are th- what are things that you sort of found yourself appreciating on you know like your tenth or twelfth? watch the movie what are the, what are the things that you catch like with those really really subtle nuances some of the symbolic stuff that's going on like there was this creepy highway patrolman in the movie who kind of uh startles janet lee's character marion crane when she's sleeping on the roadside and and you know i did some reading uh, up on hitchcock and he had this childhood fear of authority and police so i thought that really capitalized on that fear and and then I, I enjoy watching all the all the uh, character actors in the film who were doing a lot of TV at the time, um, like John Anderson. Um, he was uh, he was a California Charlie, the you know the pushy car salesman, and he was yeah. in um, several of uh, uh, Hitchcock's TV shows, and he was also on a lot of the original Twilight Zone. So I always get a kick out of. Uh, seeing uh seeing people like familiar faces like that in, in s- small roles the the cinematography that beautiful crisp cinematography by john russell that is just so awesome to look at you know he you know he was a dp who worked again a lot of tv thriller alfred hitchcock presents even shot episodes of the monsters and you know his his lens captures you know every shadow every raindrop the shower spray for example, and, and such detail, such crisp detail. You know, I love the give and take between uh, Norman and uh, Marion's sister and her boyfriend when they show up at the motel. You know that the, the great banter that goes on between um, you know, the John Gavin character and, and Norman Bates when he, you know, he's when he's trying to break Norman and trying to get inside his head and figure find out what went on, uh, and then just the dialogue too. There's such so many great lines in the film. You know, that you could just keep repeating, you know, like what Norman says about his mother. She just, she just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. 
know, haven't you? You know, I love, I love the, the, the dialogue or when he called, says about his mother, you know, boy's best friend is his mother. Things like it was the first film, uh, to ever show a flushing toilet. And it, that was revolutionary at the time. So the ground it broke with even something as simple as that, you know, not only did it have a, a shower scene, uh, a murder that, in uh, graphic detail that we'd never seen before, but you got a flushing toilet for the first time. So <laughs> there's so much, yeah. so much. It's so funny that he, um, there's, there's all these mentions of birds, you yeah. know, but whether, whether, whether it's the last name crane or whether or not that's the fact that, you know, uh, that Norman is, is doing uh, taxidermy and that he primarily does taxidermy on birds. And then by 1963, Hitchcock has made the birds. And, uh, and I think that's interesting. And I think that's, uh, yeah, some of the camera tricks I really like, like um, when uh, Arbogast goes down the steps, um, that's a really great shot, you know, and it, it almost evokes something a bit of vertigo to it. And then, um, uh-huh. yeah, and I, and I like the shower scene, but I also love um, that they use a different camera specifically for the shot where um, where Norman is looking at Marion through the through the hole on the wall, like specifically right, right. designed to make it sort of. Uh, they used a camera type that imitated the eye a little bit better, so that it would feel sort of like you were in the in the position of Norman. And I think that that in particular is something that I find very interesting because I don't know that this this film doesn't really have one singular POV character. Like, there's not one person. Because, you know, you're following Marion for a while, but then she bites it. Mm-hmm. So That's right. it's, That's, not, it's not her that after that. That was so revolutionary at the time, yeah. That was what were really uh, stunned audiences because they thought we were going to see this this lady from the from the beginning of the movie to the end, and there she, she gets killed. 45 minutes in and 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 it's a it's a real game changer the the movie resets at that point and and the focus goes on to norman and it's just so brilliant yeah i think there's a number of films that sort of like looking at at this one especially in a rewatch now having you know been in the having the 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 honor of watching at least one horror movie every day and in this <laughs> month and and just you know constantly rewatching films over and over again uh this rewatch of psycho there are certain things uh, like, yeah, like that, like that reset of losing a character made me think of, um, when Wes Craven did the first nightmare on Elm street, you know, there's a completely, before you get to Nancy, there's a, you know, there's a different woman that you start with for a while that you're following for the first act of the picture. And then she bites it. And then all of a sudden now you're with Nancy. And I, you know, I sometimes wonder whether or not Wes Craven would have thought to do something like that without something like psycho. And I wonder if, exorcist would have had the willingness to spend so much because you know like you look at at something like the exorcist and people everything they think about is the third act and uh mm-hmm. what's interesting about psycho is that you know everybody knows psycho but most people don't know 90 percent of psycho they're not thinking about the film as a whole they're not thinking of all that slow build-up they're thinking about a the shower scene and b the basement scene that's it that's what people think of honestly when they think of of psycho and yet um, the the things that make those moments so well earned uh, are all of the other these small building creeping terror things that are mm-hmm. happening throughout the whole movie. And I wonder yeah. about um, even just the the entire filmmaking of the nineteen seventies uh, would have been drastically different. I mean, without Alfred Hitchcock in general, but certainly without 
this without psycho specifically and yeah i mean there's just like there's a million things that you sort of look and and realize i I just i did a different a separate podcast uh for a different show about um herschel gordon lewis and blood feast and i Mm -hmm. think that the opening of blood feast the difference is it's in color and it's gorier and that's it Otherwise, <laughs> would Herschel Gordon Lewis have ever thought to do the thing that he did? I think he just looked at what he was doing uh, already with like how he transitioned from nudie cuties to to roughies, and then said, "Well, what's what's next?" And he looked at what he'd done, and I think he looked at Psycho and said, mm-hmm. "Put the two together, put them in color, and the splatter picture is I to me is the is the beginning of of true run and gun." making crazy gory horror movies on a budget. So in a weird way, Psycho even has an influence on something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, a few decades later, John Carpenter's Halloween, he was he- heavily in- influenced by Hitchcock and Psycho. So much so he even cast Janet Lee's own daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, as his lead actress. So, yeah, you know, there's a, uh, you re- you feel the the influence there, of course. Yeah. yeah, and then and then you know to be able to finally uh, complete that journey and uh, do the fog and actually bring you know Janet Lee into the into the film, you know, not too many right, years right. after that, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, let's talk about Janet Lee though. What a well, I mean, like mm-hmm. what a performance because the the really like about. I don't want to say 40 to 50% of the film is the fact that you really, really, really have to be invested in this person when they die. And Janet Lee really gets to, you know, whatever complex relationship um, Hitchcock's leading ladies may have had with Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the performance that um, that she gives is really, uh, I think, second to none. It's just incredible. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the, uh, the Academy recognized that, you know, they gave her Best Supporting Actress nomination. And unlike other actresses who worked with Hitchcock, who said bad things about him in later years, Janet Lee never really had a bad thing to say about him. She really, uh, you know, loved the experience of working with him on, on the film. It traumatized her in many ways. Supposedly, she could never get into a shower after Psycho. <laughs> I like that they uh, they came up with this sort of notion of um, oh, what was that? You the first thing you see her in her underwear is white, and then she steals the money. Right. And then when she's at the hotel, I mean, this is a, you know, this is not her acting, but an aesthetic choice that they came up with. But yeah, like uh-huh. she, she, yeah, underwears white, purse is white, steals the 40 grand. Now all of a sudden, everything that she wears is black. Right. It's kind right. of, it's kind know, of, it's kind of an interesting choice. Like that. That's why you keep rewatching because you pick up on things like that that you might not have noticed before. It wasn't just, yeah. you know, a doc show. There was real artistry and intelligence going on behind the scenes. And there's a great um, there's a great parallel, um, and this will kind of lead us into talking about Anthony Perkins too, um, of Janet Lee playing Marion as kind of I mean she's just losing her mind, you know, uh, because she really thinks she's going to get caught. Uh, she you know she goes yeah she goes she trades her car to try and like you know st- you know stay off the off the grid, make it so that people can't find her so easily, and. Um, they play out this whole thing where she's in the car and she's imagining a- a- how everything is playing out as people are right. figuring out that she's stolen the money. And, you know, it's w- what I like about it is that there are parts where she seems nervous, but there are also parts where she seems really self-satisfied with the bad thing that she did. 
Right. Like she's de- <laughs> like you know that she's just fed up, and that you know she feels like she's gotten her way, and that like thinking about people being so mad, she's she's smiling like got him. And I love that. Uh-huh. I like that they're sort of like all the stuff that's just on her face. We get that same thing again. I think there's a parallel to be drawn between that and then, yeah, what we, how you read sort of um, Anthony Perkins' face. And gosh, um, I, I hadn't seen him in a while. I hadn't seen, I had not watched this movie in, in a minute. And um, he's so charming at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So likable. You really wouldn't. You wouldn't know. He like I. He comes on the screen, and I was like, I know this guy goes to my bar. Like you know what I mean? Like I saw him. I was like, this is a guy that goes like, oh, have you have you tried that IPA yet? Like he just he seems like such a regular guy. Do you know what I mean? He seems like a guy mm-hmm. that that I, that I'm buddies with that lives around the neighborhood. It's it really speaks to the elasticity of the performance that he's able mm-hmm. to do that and then take it as as far opposite as as i think that uh that he does what's sort of your impression uh upon um your let's say your last rewatch of of anthony perkins performance in this just that he he's so likable uh, as you mentioned that we almost kind of uh, feel bad when he gets caught at the end and and when little things kind of drive him crazy like when that the car won't sink when he dumps it in the swamp and you feel you really feel bad for him and you you you're rooting for him in in a really twisted kind of way because uh you know he's a pretty messed up guy you know he he had this real twisted relationship with his mother that continues to haunt him and he's kind of not responsible for his actions and um you know we want to see him get rehabilitated or at least find some kind of happiness yeah i also i think it's kind of interesting cuz you, you you really do sort of struggle with the idea of um what is his main personality and what is something else, especially by the time you get to the end because of the, 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 the dubious nature of, of the voiceover. That's not his voice at all. But um, yeah, I mean, there's some, some stuff that he does like um, when, uh, when Arbor Yast comes to ask him questions, I think it's so interesting. And part of this is the scripted part of it is also the performance that Norman at first tries to just say, oh, there's, you know, there's nothing to see here and leave it at that. But um, once he's caught in it, he really almost, he becomes like, like how serial killers are, like they want to be caught. So, but they, right, but they try right. to, but they try to bring the investigator in on a little bit of a game, you know, like uh-huh. try to lead them into a maze to see if they can figure it out. And um, right. Yeah, see, that's something I never noticed before. That's so true. Yeah, yeah, I do think that he, uh, in a way, at that moment, is 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 questioning whether or not he's going to have to kill Arbogast or not. But I don't think he's against the idea, and I think he certainly is inviting Arbogast to get too close. You know, he's inviting him um, to you know to to step into the parlor, as it were. I like that. Yeah, this this latest rewatch of it, I I found myself seeing. You know, what I think are, you know, and maybe it's just that I've watched it so many times that now I'm assigning things that maybe necessarily aren't there. But that is something that I got off of this particular uh-huh. rewatch. And uh, and yeah, I mean, like, is he the killer? Is it his mother's psyche that's the killer? Um, you know, because the end, it's the mother's voice saying, you know, I wouldn't hurt a fly. And you go, well, what's what's the truth? What's the real? Uh-huh. I mean, like they explore it in in sequels, but, you know. 
um, that's a that's a very different conversation. Like so many um, films that become franchised after the fact, um, they almost feel like they're just one possible interpretation and probably not the, the right one. And I, yeah, I find myself feeling like there is just so much ambiguity in those final moments as to, um, you know, other than the fact that there's something wrong with him, it's like, is, is there a, you know, is there a mother character in there? And if so, is the mother really the one that's doing the killing or is it Norman who, who in fact was the, was the original killer? Is it that he's the killer and she's in there trying to convince him not to like it, The whole thing is just so, is so bizarre to me. And I don't think, you know, like one psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever coming in, trying to understand why he did what he did, you know, doesn't necessarily give you the final answer. I think that they sort of leave you with the lights off rather than on. I think you really, you know, just like Hitchcock was a believer in the things that you didn't see more so than the things that you did. I still think that um, there's this information that that he doesn't quite make explicit um, that I really like. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. That's Again, these are all the little things you pick up on, you know, what multiple viewings let's uh let's just say is a uh hypothesis somebody watches psycho and they go i like that that was great like they watched it for the first time somehow or they've seen it before and they're like i'm not gonna watch that one again but they but they're interested in watching something that's similar what would you recommend like what's a good what's a good balance what's a good another film to watch so maybe some of the films that also sprung from Psycho's own origins, because Psycho, the the story of Norman Norman Bates was loosely based on a, a real Wisconsin serial killer named Ed Gein, uh, who terrorized um, uh, the Midwest back in the 1950s. He used to dig up corpses and skin the bodies and wear their their body suits, and he, he murdered uh, several women and and uh, um, cut them up like deer and hung them in his shed and that kind of stuff. And other films that were inspired by the misdeeds of Ed, of uh, Ed Gein are Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Toby Hooper film, 1974, Silence of the Lambs. Again, the, the, uh, the, the killer is, uh, took a, uh, some, something from the Ed Gein uh, playbook and the way he used to skin people. You know, not the Hannibal Lecter character, the other guy. And, and also Halloween, again, I, I mentioned, even though this, these films are more graphic and follow more of the, the horror basics, uh, I think you know, if, if you like Psycho, you'll definitely like those movies as well. Also, the, um, if you want more, let's say, um, a psychological terror, there's a, a French movie called Di- Diabolique that Hitchcock was really jealous of because it was so scary and suspenseful and uh, it drove him crazy that, that a film could do do something even better than he was doing. That's going to be on Turner Classic Movies this month, uh, and that's uh, by, directed by Henry Clouseau. Uh, so that's a film that, again, is a real dark psychological thriller about these women who decide to, to murder a man and, and the repercussions. And um, let's see, Repulsion, the, the Roman Polanski film uh, that's about a, a disturbed woman, sort of like a female Norman Bates in a way. Uh, that's a film uh, that uh, if you're looking again for a real dark psychological uh, thriller, no humor at all in that one. Uh, but it's about a, a woman slowly going mad, played by Catherine Deneuve. I think it makes sense to go back a little bit in Hitchcock's uh, oeuvre uh, if you want something. I mean, I would 100 uh, percent recommend uh, Rope and um, yeah. well, even Frenzy. 
Frenzy was sort of a, a follow-up to Psycho. It was about the, the necktie murderer in London. Uh, and that uh, even was more extreme than Psycho. There was new, there was a nudity, there was uh, a rape, and, and also some uh, pretty nasty murders. And also has the wrong man accused plot that we see in other of Hitchcock's suspense classics. Uh, and that's, you know, a yeah. film that doesn't get much attention and deserves it. I would say go back and I would go back and rewatch, uh, uh, I would rewatch Shadow of a Doubt also. Yeah, yeah, that was Hitchcock's favorite movie. Yeah, with Joseph Cotton as Uncle Charlie. It's great. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fantastic one. And yeah, if you want if you want some 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 blood and guts, I, I mean, yeah, I had mentioned um, Blood Feast. Why not? If you want uh, if you yep. want to see what uh, you know, one of the sort of um, responses to or, or a film that I think shortly thereafter couldn't have existed without Psycho. Sure. Uh, what the hey? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go ahead, give a shot to Blood Feast. What a crazy what a crazy goddamn movie that is. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a wild picture. Um, but yeah, those would be, yeah, I would say either go back and watch those, uh, those Hitchcock movies or, uh, yeah, go forward and, and and watch something that is completely outlandish that couldn't have existed or, or, um, you know what, honestly, there's, uh, yeah, but there's, there's some great episodes of Alfred Hitchcock presents. Heck, you know what, there's some, uh, there's a, uh, oh gosh, um, there's a Boris Karloff, um, anthology TV series too called Thriller, Thriller. that has, has yes. a couple of, uh, yeah. has a couple of episodes that I think would probably be worth your time if you like Psycho for sure. Yeah. And one of the writers on, uh, Thriller was, uh, was Robert Block. So, you know, wrote the original novel with Psycho. So you'll get to see some of his morbid humor and, and, and crazy, uh, plotting on display. So, yeah, I think all those things are, are a good suggestion. So, uh, all right. So thank you that we're going to, we're going to call it a wrap i think that we have probably talked psycho to to, to death after 45 minutes if uh, if someone wanted to find you not in person that would be weird but if they wanted to find you and follow you on the internet where would they do that tony well i i'm on facebook and I'm, i also have a twitter uh, feed at uh, at tony Timpone one uh where yeah i review current movies old movies tv shows and put photos and things up there and you know very regular basis so you have another column coming out in the next issue of Fangoria, right? Yeah, that'll be out in December, January. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm also interviewing uh, various uh, horror people for the magazine. I have a piece on Charles Band coming up. And, and I'm oh, also right. talking to you. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's a fun one. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's a lot lots to, to read and write about. And great, great time to be a horror fan and, and, and a horror contributor, I'll tell you. Yeah, for sure. I'm really looking forward to, uh, and everybody should be looking forward to uh, you talking to Charles Band. I mean, talk about somebody who had a, a huge amount of influence on, um, on sort of like the a lot of low budget horror. Um, I mean, Full Moon Features as, as, as a whole um, has gone on to be like pretty pretty potent and powerful, and they've they've done a lot of things, both big and small, over the years, and are a company that's still around making stuff. So that would be really interested to to sort of. Uh, hear what you get out of him because i do think that he's had an enormous influence yeah we discussed his uh top top 13 films what he thinks are his best films and he lost his anecdotes on each one there you go but you probably yeah. didn't ask him about his son the rock star no <laughs> yeah i don't know why no i literally uh i have a buddy who's a music reviewer and he uh he he brought up charles band to me because he was uh he, he does like all old one hit wonders and he's like oh this guy who did a one hit wonder about his dad was some guy charles band and i was like no shit anyway um that's anyway that sounds like a very exciting 
interview and I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, my name is Danny Roth. If you go to sci-fi.com, you can find my articles, but also, um, obviously, because it's October, if you're listening to this in October, there's uh, every single day multiple horror articles and videos and podcasts and all sorts of stuff that's coming out. Um, and you can find all of those at sci-fi.com. You can also find the videos if you go to YouTube under Sci-Fi Wire. I produce a, uh, a fair amount of them. And if you're looking for me on uh, Twitter or Instagram, uh, you can find me there at Danny Ordinary. That is Danny with one N, Ordinary, also with one N. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And remember, kids, sometimes the best cure for the horrors of every day is a little every day horror. We'll see you next time.